Hebrews 1 verse 1, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you'll roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? And then almost, we're going to keep reading, but almost uh, in brackets you actually get uh, chapter 2 verses 1 to 4 and you'll See what I'm talking about in a minute. It's like a little sidetrack for the author. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Then the author kicks back in and he goes, okay, let's get back to angels. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It's been testified somewhere. What is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honour, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honour because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Why don't you pray with me? Jesus, please help us to... uh, understand what you've said and Holy Spirit I pray that you'd bring a clear interpretation into our lives of what you've said but also God I pray uh, the prayer that I think the psalmist prayed a number of times about uh, help us to love what you say because it's not just about hearing what you say it's not just about knowing what you say it's not just about knowing what to do with what you say it's also about loving what you say and I pray that you'd help us to be lovers of, uh, of you when you speak because you're the great talker. The devil is the great deceiver and you're the great talker and you keep talking even when the devil twists and deceives. So I pray this morning, Lord, that you would uh, sideline the devil and the way that he would twist and deceive the things that you say in our hearts and you'd help us to hear you and to hear you clearly. Amen.
the first probably half of this message is going to be a bit of a, I was going to say patchwork quilt, but I'm not kind of a patchwork kind of guy, am I? Maybe a jigsaw or something, all right? It's probably not entirely sequential in terms of where I'm going, but hopefully you might actually pick up a couple of things out of it, because I've been thinking about this whole thing to do with imagination. And it seems to me that in our culture, imagination seems to be dwindling away and disappearing. And I think that's probably got something to do with the naturalists or the people that think that the only thing that's real is the thing that you can see. Uh, and this is very much the evolutionary idea, is that you should be able to see it, test it, observe it, and that's all that's real. There's nothing else that's real. So when you experience love, for example, Richard Dawkins would say to you that you just experience a chemical inside of your body, and we should be able to isolate that chemical and find out what it is. And it just takes the zing out of it. And we live in a culture that takes the zing out of things. All right, because imagination is critical for having a bit of zing. Now, C.S. Lewis knew this. Uh, I actually think C.S. Lewis knew this very clearly before he even became a Christian, when he was an atheist. He made the comment, and I'm not going to read the whole quote to you, but he made the comment that he found the atheist writers really boring and he found the Christian writers really interesting, even though he didn't like how they always had an axe to grind about God which is really interesting. And even at school here at the moment, one of the uh, the consistent lines that keeps coming out from students at the school here at the moment is uh, students say, I can't believe in God or I don't believe in God because I can't see him. And it's like, unless I can sense him with my senses, he's not real. Now, that's actually not a very good logical argument. All right, The fact that for you to say God doesn't exist because I can't see him is a bad argument, All right, because you... He, you may not be able to see him because you can't see him. You get what I'm saying? But there's lots of things that you can't see. You can't see love. I mean, I've had kids in my office and, well, you can see love. All right? You can see it. You can feel the sensation. I'm going, well, okay, so you're feeling a sensation, but can you see love between two people? And you can't see it. The fact that you can't see God doesn't mean he doesn't exist. It just means that you can't see him. All right? And the Bible's quite clear about the fact that there are times where people see God. And we'll get to that in a minute. But check out what Lewis says. This is um, what Lewis said. Such then was a state of my imaginative life over against this stood the life of my intellect. The two hemispheres of my mind were in the sharpest contrast. On the one side, a many-islanded sea of poetry and myth. On the other, a glib and shallow rationalism. And this is a really important bit. Nearly all that I loved I believed to be imaginary. Nearly all that I believed to be real, I thought grim and meaningless. And this is a little bit what our culture's like, all right? The scientists are always telling us it's the things that you can actually know that are the important things and everything else is just not real. That's just imagination. But that's a pretty boring world. And this is what C.S. Lewis is saying. That's a really boring world if you're going to live in that. This guy, uh, Art Lindsley from the C.S. Lewis Institute, wrote this. Lewis said, saw the logical conclusion of his atheism as a grim and meaningless universe. Atheist Bertrand Russell made a similar observation that atheists must build their lives on the basis of unyielding despair. Seriously, that's really depressing. If the only thing that exists is what you can see, that's actually really depressing because you don't love your children, your wife doesn't love you, your husband doesn't love you, it's just chemicals, there's no purpose, there's no meaning in it, it's just there. And if you happen to walk down the street and someone runs across the street and decks you, it's just because they've had some sort of chemical that we could isolate and find out what it is. 
It's not actually, there's no other meaning to that except it's just an observable physical thing. That's a really depressing world and Lewis actually knew it. This guy, I don't even know how to say his name, I'm going to call him Carlsall, um, Carlsall Millos, all right, made this comment, right? He actually, he actually was a, a Nobel Prize winning poet. He said this, nobody lives in the objective world only in a world filtered through the imagination. You see, even the people who believe in hardcore naturalism and evolution are still actually living their lives through their imagination. You actually can't avoid it because imagination is, in a sense, the interpretation of facts that you perceive. All right. I said to Diff before this started, I thought, man, this is going to be the weirdest start to a sermon because I'm going to stuff a big rump steak down your throat right at the start. Anyway, hopefully this will start to make sense. See, last week what I talked about is the fact that uh, Christianity is about seeing what you can't see. But Christians are not the only ones that actually see what they can't see. Let me give you an example. We had our community group at the Crowders last Sunday. And uh, my boys, we used to have two border collies, and uh, my boys are really familiar with dogs and they're sweet with them, right? But they, all, they both died within six months, and no, there was no suspicious circumstances, all right? But they both died within six months of each other and we haven't had dogs for a while, right? So my boys go, we all go over to the Crowthers and they got this little, I don't know, what, what breed is it? It's a what? Lasso Opso. Okay. It's about, it's fur and it's about that long and about that high. Alright? Now they're, and they're just going, that's a dog, right? Now, even the smallest of my dudes is like twice as big as this dog. Alright? Anyway, so they're kind of a little bit nervous, a little bit confident, and they go, they switch from one to the other. Anyway, we go in the house, and the dog's in the house, and I was in one of the side rooms with uh, my son Joel, who's two years old, my younger son, right? And uh, and he's standing there, and the dog's in there, and he's kind of a little bit nervous, right? And then the dog kind of runs through the doorway into the dining room, right? And he goes, Daddy, it's a dog! He's going, yeah, it's cool. And then the next thing was classic, he goes, I'm going to kill him! <laughs> and then he ran through the doorway. I'm just going, how sweet is that? Here's my son. All of a sudden, he's on some kind of lion hunt. All right? It's like we're just coming out for lunch. We'll talk about Jesus. But somehow in his imagination, he's going, this is cool. I need to get a knife, and I'm going to knife this thing. Right? But the truth is, if he actually got to the dog, he'd start to be a little bit nervous. All right? That's my first example. All right? Kids have a great imagination, don't they? And I actually think you do. I actually think everyone has a great imagination. The second thing I'd like to uh, use is this rose, all right? Because what I actually want to persuade you by the use of this rose is that you actually see things that you can't see, okay? All right. This is a rose from our front garden, okay? And uh, as you look at this rose, now... Hear me in the fact that I'm not saying, I'm not talking about seeing with your literal physical senses. Does anyone actually see thorns when they look at a rose? Can anyone out there, you can just see thorns? Like you obviously see a rose, but there's thorns associated with it. Now you know what, there's no thorns on this rose. Alright, there's thorns on the bush. Does anyone see fertiliser? And, uh, and maybe watering? Watering, fertiliser? You know, Ange would be really embarrassed if I said this, but I, uh, I probably don't buy my wife flowers as much as I could, all right? But, you know, 
One of the things that I've said to my wife on a few occasions is when I look at a rose or a bunch of roses, I think about you because you're pretty like the roses. All right? No, no, don't, don't do that. Some of you are going, I didn't think he had a romantic bone in his body. That's the only one. All right? So don't break it. But don't you see things? I mean, don't you see a, don't you see a bush? Don't you see, don't you see thorns? I mean, maybe even if you look close enough, you can see in your mind's eye, you can actually see roots going down into the ground. You can see sunlight on it. All right? You can see, uh, maybe even some of you who have a bit to do with roses, you can see roses in the winter time that just look like you planted sticks in the ground. All right? Because you've just pruned them. And you can see that something beautiful like this actually comes from the fact that you pruned it really, really hard. You see, the truth is that almost all of the time we're seeing things that you can't see. And that's the function of your imagination. In fact, you can't read anything at all without using your imagination. When if you look at a book, even a science book about biology, and you're looking at a picture of the human body, maybe in all the, the muscular system in the human body, you're not looking at a muscular system, are you? You're looking at some ink on a page. But the image helps your imagination to see what really is. And this is the weird thing for me, and this is kind of where I'm going a little bit today, and we will get to Hebrews, and hopefully you'll see the relevance a little bit later on, but this is this huge big revelation that's been happening for me over the last week or so, is that the imagination, the purpose of the imagination is not mainly to see things that aren't true, but it's actually mainly to see things that are true. And we just use it all the time. And people get into trouble when their imagination malfunctions and they stop seeing things that are actually true and they start seeing things that aren't true. That's when we get into trouble. Eugene Peterson, the uh, author of The Message, wrote this uh, really interesting article on the imagination. I've got a couple of excerpts from it. He said, when I look at a tree, most of what I see, I do not see at all. I see a root system beneath the surface, sending tendrils through the soil, sucking up nutrients out of the loam. I see the light pouring energy into the leaves. I see the fruit that will appear in a few months. I stare and stare and see the bare branches. I steer in next winter's snow and wind. I see all that. I really do. I'm not making it up, but I could not photograph it. I see it by means of imagination. If my imagination is stunted or inactive, I will only see what I can use or something that is in my way. That's really profound. Now, this may not have occurred to you, but imagination is absolutely key when it comes to faith. That's really important. And it's a little bit freaky to say that because some of you are just kind of going, oh, okay, so we've just got to conjure up this idea in my mind that I have to imagine that it's actually real when it's not real. No, I'm not saying that at all. Because most of your use of the imagination is about finding out what reality is really like. A couple of more quotes about imagination. Imagination is not to conjure up what is unreal. Rather, it is seeing what is real but is unseen. You get reality not just by explanation, you also get it by imagination. See, what explanation gives you, when someone explains something, it gives you information, all right? But when you use your imagination, you then attach meaning to information. And meaning is uh, what gives it the zing. This guy, uh, David Ignato, said this. He said, what imagination does with reality is the reality that we live by. See, the truth is that all of you have come in today and you're actually perceiving what's going on in your 
your life at the moment and you're actually using your imagination all the time. And you're actually living in the reality of what your imagination is teaching you about your current situation. All right. Now the huge question is, is the way that your imagination is interpreting your reality, is that actually real or is it not real? Because you can get into a whole bunch of trouble if you're, the way that you're interpreting reality is not real. That leads you down the garden path. Eugene goes on to say this, Explanation pins things down so that we can handle and use them. Obey and teach, help and guide. Imagination opens things up so that we can grow into maturity, worship and adore, exclaim and honour, follow and trust. Explanation restricts and defines and holds down. Imagination expands and lets, lets loose. See, the truth is that the kingdom of God is as real as anything. But the truth is we don't always see it, do we? And you can, I hope you can see that imagination is critical to faith. It's critical to your whole life, but it's actually really, really critical to faith. And at the end of the day, I actually think this is the purpose of almost every, well, maybe I shouldn't say every, but this is the purpose of most of the Bible is to help you to see what you can't see and to fire up your imagination. This is the purpose of why the writer of Hebrews is writing what he's writing because he wants you to see something that you can't see. Imagination and explanation are meant to be used in tandem. You see, I could stand up and I could tell you a lot of things about Hebrews, but if your imagination and the, and the meaning senses are not being fired up by someone preaching, you, you've just missed, missed the boat. Oh, this is a great quote. I'm not even a It's not a totally neat fit into what I'm saying, but I think this is a really sweet quote from uh, G.K. Chesterton. Um, check this out. A child kicks his legs rhythmically through excess, not absence of life. Because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. Well, I meditate on that a little bit. Grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. He goes on to say, It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately but he's never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old and our father is younger than we. The, re- the repetition in nature may not be a mere recurrence, it may be a theatrical encore. Heaven may encore the bird who laid an egg. I mean, maybe, well, not maybe, Jesus seems to be onto something when he says, have faith like a child. I mean, monotony kills us. All right, a couple more slides on imagination. Most of the Bible is about helping you to see what you can't see. In fact, if you want to be really, really hardcore about it, pretty much every single book about history is about helping you to see something you never saw, isn't it? And in fact, watching the news at night, watching the TV is about helping you to see something you never saw because when you sit down in front of the TV, you're not looking at what's going on in Syria at the moment. You're looking at pixels on a screen. The pixels help you to see what's going on in Syria at the moment. Now, the writer of Hebrews knows this. In, in Hebrews 11, verse 1, he says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. 
Alright? So he's wanting to fire up your faith. So you get excited and you see the meaning in it. And you see something that you can't see. And then I read this this week in Deuteronomy chapter 4 and I thought, wow, this is so relevant. Moses says to the people, only take care, this is to the Israelites, it's a bit of a warning, take care and keep your soul diligently lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen. So even when you see something, you can stop seeing something that you saw. You see that? And the truth is that, we I mean, I talked about this a little while ago at the project here about the importance of remembering God because that's what we do. We stop seeing things that we saw. Lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. So Moses is saying, keep them there. Keep seeing the things that you saw. Keep being thankful for the things that God did for you. All right. Now, I'm going to show you a scripture. Just going to talk about this just for a little bit. Job and rain. Job's a dude in the Old Testament where uh, pretty much everything that was precious to him uh, got taken, well, except for his wife, got taken away, but then she turned against him, so you could probably argue she wasn't all that precious to him for a little while because she said, curse God and die, which is just, by the way, is not good advice. All right? Um, so basically uh, Job lost everything. He was bummed out, and uh, he wrote a whole bunch of stuff. Here's something that he wrote in, um, or something that he said in Job 5, 8 to 10. As for me, I would seek God, and to God would I commit my cause, because he just lost everything and he's pretty bummed out. Who does great things and unsearchable, marvellous things without number. And then he, the first thing that he cites as the marvellous, unsearchable thing is this. He gives rain on the earth and sends waters on the fields. It's a bit of a letdown, isn't it? Okay, so he does marvellous, amazing things. Rain. Uh, okay, seriously, is that the best you can come up with? Well, sometimes uh, I read an article from Piper and he said, uh, meditation uh, is having a conversation with yourself. All right, so let's just have a little bit of, bit of a conversation about rain, okay? Picture yourself, I'm just using imagination here, there's a bit of a test run. Picture yourself, you're a farmer in the Middle East because this is where Job was, right? You don't have dams, Okay? You just don't have massive irrigation dams. You've got wells to drink from. Basically, your only hope of getting water for your crops is rain. All right? The rain's got to come in. You've got maybe a few animals. You've got some crops. Uh, you've got to feed the family. It's a subsistence um, uh, culture, so you've got to feed your family. And you need water. Well, where's it going to come from? Well, it's got to come from the clear blue sky, doesn't it? Alright? Now where's the water going to come from for the clear blue sky? Well, basically, let me give you a little bit of science. Basically what happens is the sun shines down on the ocean and the water kind of gets light enough so that it can float up through the air. Like evaporation, it kind of changes and it floats up through the air. Alright? And then, basically, uh, on one account I read is that the water actually attaches to little pieces of dust in the air. Alright? It attaches the dust and then it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger as the water goes up. Like, this is like the scientific explanation, but can you kind of see if you use your imagination, you're just kind of going, this is un, like, really? Serious? And like, the water in the Mediterranean, is it going to be fresh water or salt? What is it? It's salt. Alright? It's salt water. Okay? Ocean. What water falls out of clouds? Salt water or fresh water? Well, that's weird. 
isn't it? Have you ever done the calcs to work out how many tonnes of water have fallen when you get 20 millimetres of water on a square kilometre of land? Do you know how many tonnes? 20,000 tonnes. 20,000 tonnes of water fall in 20 millimetres of rain. Now, we just, uh, about a week ago, we had about three inches, all right, which is about 70 mils, 75 mils. Think about how many tonnes of water there is in that, right? Now, use your imagination because now you're kind of going... So, basically, what he's doing is he's bringing 20,000 tonnes of water, I mean, more, but if it just only rained on a square kilometre, there's 20,000 tonnes of water just hanging up in the sky. Isn't that amazing? I think that's amazing. All right, now, God could just kind of pull the lever and just open the gates and just drop it all at once, couldn't he? All right? That would be really uncool if he did that. Okay? And most of us would be going to the chiropractor or physio very shortly after that. But he doesn't, does he? He set it up so that it just comes down in a nice fashion. I mean, we get some pretty heavy rain uh, back at the start of 2011 and the place floods, but let's be honest about it, that's still nothing like God opening the floodgates in a sense and just dropping 20,000 tonne per square metre, per square kilometre. You get this? Look, it is amazing. And the, the weird thing is that you can get in and you can look at the scientific reasons why things happen and it just takes the imagination and it takes the mystery and the beauty out of it, doesn't it? And I don't think the answer is to say we're not going to do science. The answer is to do the science and then add the imagination to the science and see the beauty in it. And I think some of the early pioneers in science knew this and they, they sought knowledge and understanding of the way that things worked because of the mystery of God and the way that he created things. Like this might not do anything for you at all. But at uni, I, uh, I did engineering science, which is a pretty high-end subject down in Sydney. And one of the things we had to research was uh, the different states of steel. Steel is just a phenomenal material because you can, if you heat it up to a certain temperature and then you cool it really quick and then you can temper it, you can do so many things with steel. Our world would just be in a mess, actually, if we didn't have steel. This a lot of the structural components of this building are steel. And it's so varied in the way that you can actually use it. God's built so many things into it. And we can sit down, I can sit in a uni lecture and they can tell you all about what happens when you get it up to 1300 degrees Celsius and then you quench it in cold water. What happens to the carbon and the carbon gets trapped in the cells. But at the end of the day, that's amazing. That's amazing that God's created a material that you can do so many things with. And I just encourage you, let's fire up our imaginations not to see fictional things that aren't real, but let's fire up our imaginations to see things that are real. All right, we are getting to uh, Hebrews. Here we go. I mentioned that uh, Hebrews uh, 2 verse 1 to 4 is a little bit of an interlude. All right, it's kind of the author just saying, look, just pay attention. Just This is really important. Pay attention to it. And then he gets back in verse 5 to uh, kind of where he's going with the angels. So we'll just go through it. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honour, putting everything in subjection under his feet. God's talking about you. This originally, this quite originally comes from Psalm 8 and he's talking about you. What's really interesting about this scripture See, the start of it, it says, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. God's actually got a plan to get his people 
to be the rulers of the world that's coming. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. I mean, I was just thinking the other day when I was walking up the path there, you know, those thoughts when I was a young guy where you're just kind of going, seriously, like we're just going to be bound down and worshipping all the time? You know, that's I'm going to hope I get a new body because that's going to be a sore back, all right? And it honestly, it just, God forgive me, but it sounds a bit boring. But you know what? That's not what God's got planned for us only. That's something that we're going to be doing and that's going to be beautiful. But that's just a really narrow definition of what worship is. Really narrow. Alright? God's version of worship is just so incredibly broad. In fact, we worship all the time. And one of the gigs that he's going to have for us is he's going to say, you're going to be in charge of some stuff. And that will be our way that we're going to worship him. But then we see this. This is really interesting. This is at the end of 8. Now, putting everything in subjection to him, to humans, he left nothing outside human control. Now, this is pretty similar to what we actually see in Genesis. If you go right back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image, this is the creation story, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then, also in 128, God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The writer of Hebrews, let's just go back to it, says that nothing has been left outside of your control. Is that true? You're kind of going, well, it must be because it's in the Bible, right? No, but is it like in reality? I'm not asking whether the Bible said it, whether it's true. I'm just saying, is that is that your experience? That everything's under your control? Uh, chances are that some of you are sitting here today and there's literally situations going on for you where you're out of control. And it's frustrating and it's disappointing and it's depressing. Maybe it's health. It's a whole bunch of things that could be going wrong. So what's he talking about? What's going on here? Well, you know what's going on is when humans sin, we stop being in subjection. Sorry, things stop being in subjection to us. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. This is what we see in Genesis 3. Read through this. This is the result of the fall. Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I've commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Some of you guys here are just going, I've just found my proof text, all right? What he got wrong is he listened to his wife, (laughs) all right? You've just gone, it's going to be a good day. I'm going home and I'm not going to listen to her, all right? But that's not what he's saying. The big idea here is uh, you've... All of you have disobeyed, and because you've disobeyed, everything's going to get messed. All right. So even the best things are just going to be frustrating. And some of you go, "Oh, why does it have to be like that?" Because you do that to him. All right. And especially for the man. All right. God's word specifically for the man is, "You're going to go out and you're going to do lots of things now, but it's just going to be really frustrating." And I want you to know that the way that it really frustrates you is exactly the way that you frustrate me. You thwart the things that I'm doing. It's true. And so we live in a world that isn't perfect and things don't go the way that we want them to go. And things are not in subjection and they're frustrating. 
Here's a classic example of it. This is the ABC News from uh, 30th of May, uh, a week and a bit ago. A powerful earthquake has killed at least 16 people in northern Italy. More than 100 people have been injured and rescue workers are searching for survivors trapped in the rubble. The magnitude 5.8 quake struck near Bologna and was followed by a series of aftershocks. 14,000 people have been left homeless, many more are sleeping on the streets for fear of more tremors. A quake in the same region last week killed seven people and damaged historic buildings. Is that subjection? It's not subjection. Looks like we're in subjection to nature, doesn't it? Because that's what happened. That's what happened when humans sin. See, the truth is that we actually can't control most things. Things go wrong, they break down, they corrode. They rust, they malfunction, things become worthless. Tornadoes happen, earthquakes happen, children disobey, relationships break down, weeds grow, crops fail, droughts happen and floods happen. Fruit fly destroys, isn't that the most frustrating thing? We've just got some fruit trees now that can have fruit on them. The fruit fly, they're just irritating. Has anyone ever grown trees for, oh, it's beautiful. And they just, a little pinhole in there and they wreck the whole fruit. Not that we've had any like that, but I've seen it happen, all right? Our trees aren't quite old enough, but it's just irritating. Why do you just got to spray the thing all the time? And then you kind of glow a strange shade of green. We spend lots of money to buy something new, and it breaks down. Have you ever had that? It's like it's got a five-year warranty, but it's still breaking down, all right? And now I've got to get someone to come and fix it. I only bought it two days ago, and it's breaking down. Viruses attack computers. Cars break down. Some of us get cancer. Some of us have heart attacks. Just when we begin to get some wisdom, we get old and become weak, all right? It's just like, man, like you're just actually starting to get some mouse about you, you know? You'd at least wish you had another 50 years, all right? It's a weird thing. I'm not saying that some of them don't have wisdom, but the weird thing about teenagers is they, they, they're the ones that think they've got all the wisdom, all right? And they kind of don't have as much as they think they do, and the older people are kind of going, no, I've really got no idea what's going on, and they're the ones that do know what's going on. Ah, oh, it's a weird dynamic. Hair turns grey. Hair falls out. Alright? Hearts harden. We lose our memory, our health fails, and eventually we die. It's not in subjection to us the way that it was meant to be. But you know what? There actually is one to whom everything is subject. It's Jesus, and this is what the writer of Hebrews wants you to know. In your frustration where things are not in subjection to you, when you've got an ingrown toenail, right, or whatever it is, there's someone to whom everything's subject. And this is what the writer of Hebrews wants you to know in verse 9. He says, but we see him, we see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honour because of the suffering of death. So here's a story. We were made to be in charge. We were made to be having dominion over things around us. And because we sinned, we lost it. And what does God do? Ah, see you later, suckers. All right? You did it. All right? You can just stew in your own juice. No, he doesn't do that at all, does he? Because God's all about redemption. And that's what we've talked about at the project quite a bit, is redemption. The weird thing about it is... uh, there's a bunch of concepts that we talk about at the project that show up in uh, popular culture. Now, this is at iCare Plus in Grand Central. You see this? That's Goodell Evans on his pushy. And what's the big byline? Redemption. 
Oakley congratulates Cadell Evans on his first tour, tour win, Tour de France. You see, Jesus comes and he becomes subject to this world to save us and to redeem us and to redeem the dominion that he originally gave us. But the, the weird thing about it is, even though Jesus comes and does that, in, in some ways in our imagination we like to think that God comes in, in Jesus, and he just sorts it all out and it kind of ends like a Hollywood movie. But the truth is that it doesn't end like a Hollywood movie. And the life that we have to live out isn't like a Hollywood movie. It feels a heck of a lot like a battle, doesn't it? Even though Jesus has done this, there's a sense in which, uh, it's a Ian Shelton phrase, he says, we get mugged by reality. Reality, reality just gets us. It gets in the way. And we'd love to think that it's all going to work out and it's all going to be happily ever after, but it just doesn't always work that way in the short term, does it? I want to show you a clip from uh, a Lord of the Rings movie. All right. Basically, the big idea here is that there's a uh, place called Helm's Deep and it's a fortress in the hills. And... Uh, Legend has it that no one has ever attacked people who are in Helm's Deep and actually beaten them. So the good guys have retreated to Helm's Deep because they're under, they're in trouble and there's all these weird looking orcs and things. If you're not into this kind of mystery literature, mystery, is it mystery? It's not really mystery, but, uh, mystical. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, if you're not into it, uh, you just have to persevere. But the big idea here is that there's a whole bunch of creatures that have been created and they just want to get these people. And these people have been holding out, holding out, holding out against countless hordes coming to take them and to kill them. And they've just got to the point where they've realised it's, it's too late. They can't hold them out anymore. It's going to be the first time that Helm's Deep is actually going to be um, torn asunder, I guess, by uh, people attacking it. Um, the weird thing about it is, uh, and this is where I want to start to tie in imagination a little bit to it, right? There's been a promise by uh, Gandalf the White Wizard that he would come on the morning of the next day, all right? So what you've got in this scene is you've actually got all the people just going, we're going to die. There's no way out of this, we're going to die. And it's, just, it's like they've been mugged by reality, but Gandalf is still going to come through on his promise. So the big question is, are they going to hold firm? on what Gandalf said he's going to do and see what they can't see or are they going to get consumed? But did you notice that? The despair that was in there because they could only see what they could see. And then they got to the point where they just thought, well, there's no honour in just dying trying to hide, so let's get on our horses and ride out. And just before they go out, the memory of what Gandalf promised actually came through and it started to shape reality for them because he was always coming. He was always coming. He was always just over the hill and he was always going to come down and attack the bad guys and help them to win the battle. And this is the case with Jesus. This is the case uh, with uh, Hebrews chapter 2 that the writer of Hebrews wants you to know that even in all of those things in your life that are not in subjection to you, that Jesus has them all in, under his rule, under his dominion. And even when it looks like the battle of life is that we're losing and I'm going, to, I'm going to be torn asunder, he would want you, the writer of Hebrews, and God would want you to use your imagination to see what really is there and not just what is right in front of you. You see, uh, there's another quote, I think, from uh, Peterson's article. He says, People's difficulty is not just confusion with what they see. It is the huge, significant realities that they do not see 
As a result, they do not live with the faith, hope, love and courage that they would if they saw those things. It puts a spring in your step. And this is what God would want for you. This is what God would want for all of you is that you would walk out the doors at the back of this church and you would see something that you can't see. Because you see lots of things that you can't see. So why not see the kingdom? Why not see Jesus who has dominion over everything in the midst of your battles and the things that are hard where you feel like someone's just stuck a sword into your leg all right, and you're walking with a lamp and you don't even know whether you're going to make it, why not see that reality? Why not see Jesus with dominion who's, who's orchestrating things according to his plan to get things done, to get you through? He wins. You only have to read Revelation at the end. He wins. And the, probably the scripture that this scene reminds me of the most is Revelation 19 because it says, Behold, I looked and before me there was a man riding on a white horse and it was Jesus on a white horse, and he has all the armies of heaven behind him. He wins. And you need to know that. You need to use your imagination to see reality in the midst of the battles that you have. I was reading this uh, scripture out of Isaiah uh, to the staff a couple of weeks ago, and I just thought, whoa, isn't this exactly it? Check this out. It says in Isaiah 40, To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. You see that Isaiah saying, look, you guys just don't get it. You don't get reality. You need to engage your imagination to get reality, not to think of something fictional, but to think of what's real. He says, lift up your eyes and look at the stars. You should do that. Right In the midst of anxiety and pressure and stress, when you get sick, when your kids get sick, probably one thing you should do according to Isaiah is to walk out and into the backyard at night time and look up at the stars and maybe read Isaiah 40 uh, and this verse. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. And then this, right in the middle. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Do you know what this is? This is someone, this is a people that can only see what they see. You see that? And they're complaining, and they're going, you've forgotten me, you're not helping me. And the weirdest thing about preaching over the last four weeks for me is about the last three weeks in a row, there's been a really intense issue happen for me that was exactly what I had to preach on. And it was a test for me. It was like, Sondergeld, you just better make sure that you uh, put this into practice before you say anything about it. And I'm just telling you, like Friday night, probably from Friday night to Saturday night, I was just dominated by this issue that blew up in my life. And you know what? I'm just going, this is Sondergeld's test because at the moment all he can see is what he can see. And I need to engage my imagination and I need to get past what's right in front of me. Because every single time that you complain and you grumble and whinge and are upset about life, it's actually because all you're looking at is what you can see in front of you and you're not looking to what you can't see. And so Isaiah saying, Come on, guys, what's going on? You don't see it. That's, I mean, preceding this bit, he's going, you guys, I'm trying to help you here. I want you to look and I want you to see the reality. I don't want you to get stuck just seeing the details. You see, every single time that you get anxious, 
probably almost every time it's because you just see what you see. And when reality gets smashed a little bit for you or when things happen that you didn't anticipate, you often end up in a place, and this happened to me yesterday, where you just see what you can see. And you get anxious and you get stressed and you just think, oh, this is terrible, it's not going to work out. This is not what I want. And you get upset and it's okay to be emotional sometimes. If you get upset and sometimes you might chuck a little tanny, all right, because you're not getting what you want, you kind of stomp your feet, right, because all you can see is what you can see. And God would say, don't just look at what you can see. Don't be like the Israelites who are getting punished by God for their sins and they're going, oh, just because we're getting punished, it means you don't care about us. And if the truth be known, we could probably go around a whole bunch of us here who have had a prayer or at least a thought in our heart where we've said to God, you don't care about me. I've got to do this myself. That's ultimately anxiety, isn't it? You don't care about me and I've got to look after this myself and this situation is too big for me to look after it. And so I'm freaked out. You need your imagination. So what does Isaiah say immediately after that? He says this, listen, have you not known? And Isaiah would say this to you today, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord's the everlasting God. He's the creator of the ends of the earth. You look out and you see the tree out there and the shrubs in the garden and the even the crusher dust out there and even the materials used for the concrete and the steel above it, he made it all. Don't you know that? Because in the middle of stress and pressure anxiety, you don't know it. Because you don't see it. You don't see God. And he's going, you need to see him. He doesn't faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. See, as I saying, look at reality. Let me fire up your imagination. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even you shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles, they shall run and not be weary, they shall walk and not be faint. Isaiah saying, look at this reality. This God is so sensational, he never has to have a sleep. He never has to lie down. Alright? He's not like some of us, he just kind of, it's got to be a Sunday afternoon nap. Just give me ten minutes just in front of the footy or something, right? Maybe put a bit of quiet music down. I've just got to have a little bit of, bit of a nana nap, all right? He never has a nana nap, all right? Never has even a micro sleep, all right? Like some people do when they're driving, which is a bad idea. He never has that. He's saying, I am always fresh and alert and on the job. Believe and know and imagine that reality. That's not a fiction, that's a reality. Now, if you actually believe that, uh, you can go to the next phase that Isaiah goes to and he says, not only is he alert, energetic and always on the job, but he can give you everything you need to be alert, energetic and always on the job. Now obviously you're going to have to have sleep at some point in time, but what he's saying there is when you get tired and you can't go on anymore, the one who's alert, energetic and always on the job will give you some of his excess because he always has excess. And Isaiah said, don't look at what you can just see See the God that you can't see and see the help that he's going to bring for you. You see, when your imagination is atrophied, all you see is your problem. That's all you see. And unfortunately in our culture, our imaginations have just been messed and now we're in this situation where we don't have dominion anymore and it gets really frustrating and it gets a bit depressing and we're not using our imagination to see reality anymore. 
You see, the writer of Hebrews, for the rest of chapter 2, goes on to deal with, and we'll get to this in a few weeks' time, deal with the main issue for us that we actually don't have under our subjection is death. And he deals with the issue of the fear of death. So I got online, and I don't know whether you know, do you guys know this? There's a death clock online. Have you guys heard of that? I heard about it a while ago, and I only just found it again, so I thought, I'm just, because what it is, is you put all your details in, right? And, and it'll tell you the day that you're going to die. <laughs> Some people are going, oh, what would you do that for? So here's what I came up with. I'm dying on Monday, May the 5th, 2031, apparently. Check the questions out here, though. It says, uh, day of birth. You can see there I was born on the day that thousands of people were killed in America by Muslims, which is a pretty nice time. 1973, don't bother doing the mass, I'm 38. Uh, sex is male. Check, and this is the bit I love. Mode. You can pick pessimistic or optimistic. Do you reckon anyone who's going to the death clock is going to be optimistic? <laughs> <laughs> Your body mass index thing, I'm 27. I'm not going to give you the formula for that one because that would be embarrassing. All right, smoking status, non-smoker. See, death is a big problem. And philosophers know this. I remember being lectured by a guy called, um, or I went to an in-service by by a guy called Peter Vardy who worked in Heathrop College in London. And um, I don't think he was a Christian guy. It was a secular college, I think. And uh, he, he actually told us, he said, I literally have my coffin in my office because he's a philosopher and he said, I need to live with the reality of my death all of the time. So he works next to the coffin that he's going to lie in when he dies. All right? Now, philosophers know the big, big problem about philosophy is actually death creates a whole bunch of issues. Last slide. The cool thing is that the writer of Hebrews knows that Jesus actually deals with death. The ultimate thing that's not under our subjection or not subjected to us, he deals with it. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. What do you reckon is in that sandwich? <laughs> All right? That's what I was thinking about. I just thought, Jesus comes down there, just give me a big death sandwich. All right, now I looked up Google Images search, what's a death sandwich, and it's pretty much got about five or six rashes of bacon and all the cheese that you want. Pretty much gives you an instant, instant cardiac arrest, I think, if you eat it. But think about that. Jesus tasted death. The one who was eternal, eternally alive, came down, became a person and tasted death so that we didn't have to taste it that way. It actually says this in uh, John. Jesus says it himself, John chapter 8. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. <laughs> Aren't they nice to each other? Oh, you're, just, you're dead, so you've probably got more than one even. I don't know, but at least you've got one. You've got a demon, all right? It's, maybe these days you go, you're psycho, man. Look, what is wrong with you? It's just gone, you're not going to die. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. I'll finish with this story. It's not a true story, I don't think. But I remember hearing this story about a father and a son who, um, and I'm just, there's a bit of writer's embellishment here just to help you to get the idea, alright? It's not a true story anyway, so I'll make it work for you, hopefully. But a father and a son who had, uh, the father's mother was sick and was dying. And the father and the son were travelling to, uh, to see their grandmother, uh, as she was dying. 
and the car broke down. And uh, so they're on the side of the road with the car waiting for help to come. And of course the father and the son have this conversation about death. And the son's pretty young, the son's about 10. All right, so it's a pretty tender time for them. And uh, the father ends up saying, son, you know what death is like for those who trust in Jesus? Death is like us sitting on the side of the road here. He said every time a truck goes past, the shadow goes over us of the truck. But that's a whole lot different to actually being run over by the truck. Everyone who doesn't know God, it's like death is like a truck that literally runs over them. And everyone who does know God and does know Jesus because Jesus tasted death for us, it's just like the shadow passes over the top of us. And so there's a new opportunity for us to see death differently. And I think if we see death death differently, we'll live life differently, won't we? And so I wonder... We'll get to this in, the, in uh, the coming weeks when we do some more stuff on Hebrews, but I wonder how you see death. I wonder if you wake up in the middle of the night sometimes and think about it. But you just need to know that Jesus dealt with it in a way. He had the death sandwich for you so that you don't have to taste it. But Jesus knows in John 8 that people are going to die, but he's, uh, he's kind of saying this is just like totally different now because of what I'm about to do. It's just different. It's just different. It's like the shadow instead of the truck. Why don't you pray with me? God, thanks for reminding us, teaching us about reality. I pray that you would fire up our imaginations so that we'd see what really is there. God, I pray that as we see what really is there, that this week would be filled with courage and boldness and that we just go for the jugular on a whole bunch of issues in our life because we know the truth about you. We know what reality is. We know that you do have dominion, that things are subject to you. You've got to pray for anyone who's just in a situation at the moment where they're really uh, anxious and all they can see is what they can see. I pray that you...